right, if you would, take your Bible this morning, please, and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. So that should be something like the fifth book in your Bible, I think, if my count's right. And Deuteronomy chapter number 6, and we will begin reading in verse number 4. We're going to read two verses today, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Beginning a new series of messages this morning where I want to highlight my belief, and I want to pass on to you my belief, that one life can make a difference. One life is able to make an impact. Maybe more importantly, your life is able to make a difference. In fact, I think that God made you to make a difference. And I think that somewhere deep inside of you, you've probably always believed that. Here's why I say that. I say that we believe that one life can make a difference, that one person can make a difference. Because when I was four, five years old, my mother sewed for me a bright red Superman cape. And I would cruise around our house, jump on our trampoline, and fight the dog, the bad guy, and be a hero. There's something in us that believes and celebrates the idea that one person really can swoop in at the last possible minute and they can save the day. It doesn't matter if that's John Wayne or Clint Eastwood riding into town with a six-shooter on their hip or the macho man Randy Savage running into the ring with a steel chair in his hand. We believe that one person can make a difference. And every now and then in life, you hear about or you may even meet that one person who was a legitimate hero. Or you might meet somebody whose life was saved or affected by a hero. One of the coolest experiences of my life was meeting a lady from Czechoslovakia whose life really was changed as she was rescued by a hero. And the man's name, the hero who rescued her, was a man by the name of Nicholas Winton. And Nicholas Winton was a great, great hero who in... The middle part of the 20th century, as, as an English man born to German-Jewish parents in England, he watched as Nazism and fascism rose to prominence in Germany. And he realized the threat that this would be to the Jewish people in Europe. And he realized that he couldn't do everything to save the Jewish people, but he could do something. And so in 1938, up until the very, very final moments before World War II began, on September 1st, 1939, he worked to rescue children from Czechoslovakia, Jewish children out of Czechoslovakia, and put them on trains to take them to England. And I met one of those women who was born to Jewish parents in Czechoslovakia. Her entire family was killed in the Nazi Holocaust, but she made it to England, was adopted, lived came to America and was able to live her life because one man made a difference. Nicholas Winton saved the lives of 669 children from Czechoslovakia during World War II. Those children grew up. Many of them had their own children, their own grandchildren. By now, their great-grandchildren and beyond. And so there are thousands of people whose lives have been impacted by one person. I want to suggest to you today that you may just be one person 
And you may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. You can impact somebody. And the reason that I'm doing this now is because, well, because we're headed towards Christmas, aren't we? And you may know or you may not know that Christmas Eve this year is on a Sunday. And I know some of you well enough. I've heard you give your prayer requests. I know your families. I know some of your friends. And I know that there's, for many of you, there's one person in your life that you would give up everything to have them sitting with you in church on Christmas Eve, wouldn't you? You know who that one person is. And I want to talk to you over the next few weeks about what it would mean for you as one person to make a difference in the life of one person. Because I think our God wants to use our one lives to make a difference in the lives of other people. But before we can get into any of that, we've got to talk about this one God who uses us for His purpose, to figure out what that purpose is. And that's what this passage of Scripture is about in Deuteronomy. So let's read it together. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Now, I've been very, very open to you about my love for the book of Deuteronomy. And I know some of you are familiar with the Bible and you think, Deuteronomy, really? I know, the heart wants what it wants. I can't explain it, right? But the book of Deuteronomy really is one of the highest mountain peaks in all of Scripture. It's not that some parts of the Bible are more important than other parts, but the book of Deuteronomy is really important. Unfortunately, the book of Deuteronomy suffers from bad marketing because Deuteronomy sounds like a pasta dish, right? What what is a Deuteronomy? Well, let me see if I could maybe help you get the big picture of the book of Deuteronomy and then narrow down on why it's so important, particularly as it relates to these verses. The name or title Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words that just means second law. Deutero, second law. And so what you have in the book of Deuteronomy is this. You remember that God used Moses to lead the people of of Israel out of Egypt. They had been slaves for 400 years. Forty years later, when the book of Deuteronomy occurs, they're about ready to enter into the land that God had promised to their ancestors. Y'all still with me so far? Good, because we've got a long way to go this morning. All right. They're about to go into the land that God had promised their ancestors. But you'll remember that the people going into the land of promise are not the people who left the land of Egypt. Right? It's a new generation. It's different people who were not there. When God delivered them out of Egypt. Who were not there to see the thunder and the smoke and the lightning on top of Mount Sinai. Who did not have this collective memory. And so how are they supposed to live as the people of God when they go into the promised land? What does God want from them? What does God expect from them? How can they live so that God can bless them? What happens in the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses, at the end of his life, gives the people the law again. And in the book, he recaps all that they have experienced. And he also recasts what God expects from them as his people. And so I submit to you that if you are able to wrap your mind around the book of Deuteronomy and really get it into your heart, if you can scale this summit 
And you can stand on the top of the book of Deuteronomy, and you can look back as Deuteronomy reviews everything that has come before it, and you can look ahead and preview everything that comes in the Bible. But if that's true, and I think it is, if that's true, then the verses we've read today, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, are the very top of the summit. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 are very, very much the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. Probably the most familiar, the most quoted, the most memorized, the most essential verses of Scripture for the Old Testament people of God, even for Jewish people today. In fact, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is so important that today, and throughout thousands of years, even probably Jesus himself, when little Jewish kids go to bed, they do not say their prayers and say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They do not say, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. They say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. Va'afta et Adonai Elohecha, v'kol levavka, uvahol nafshka, uvahol ma'odicha. They say the Shema. They say these verses. This is their bedtime prayer. It's that important. Why is it important? Because it reminds them of their one God. And it reminds them of their one obligation to that one God. These verses are so important that one day a man comes to Jesus and says to him, Master, teacher, what do I have to do to have eternal life? What does Jesus say? What does he say? It's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. He doesn't say, well, you need to join a Baptist church. You need to pay your tithes. I'm all for tithing to a Baptist church, believe me. But what he says in Deuteronomy or in Luke chapter number 10, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. You see what Jesus says? He said, If you want to know God, it goes back to those verses you've been saying your whole life in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. They're that important that you cannot understand the message of the Bible. You cannot understand the message of the church. And you cannot understand how God wants to use your one life without understanding these verses about one God. And that's where the verse starts, right? It tells us about one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this passage of Scripture is known as the Shema. And that's from the Hebrew word at the beginning of the verse, hear. It's a Hebrew imperative. Hear. You hear. But it's not just about hearing with your ear, is it? It's about hearing in your heart. Really zero, lean in close. Pay attention. Listen carefully. Your God is one. Now, today, I assume that somebody's already laid all the groundwork for me. And that all of y'all believe in one God. I'm sure that every one of you are convinced monotheists. Nobody is coming here today believing in a plurality of Canaanite gods like maybe they would have in Deuteronomy chapter number 6. And so you think, well, Jesse, if you're going to preach to me about how there's one God, I've already got that covered a long time ago. And so I can just put the parking brake up, put the car in gear, flip it off, and my mind can just wander today. Well, feel free if you need to do that. But I would submit to you today that you should consider these words that there's only one God because that was not the assumption when the book of Deuteronomy was written. Nobody would have believed that there was only one God. In fact, to say that there was only one God would have been totally 
It would have been lunacy to the ancient world. I mean, think about it. Do you really believe that the same God controls the weather in Alabama that controls the weather in Minnesota? You're really going to tell me that blizzards and tornadoes come from the same being? That's crazy, right? And what the ancient people would have said is that there's a bunch of different gods out there. And you've got gods for war, and you've got gods for weather, and gods of the dirt, and gods of the air, and gods of the ocean, gods of love. They're really important. And there are all these different gods that you have to please and that you have to serve. But they would have told you that those gods are limited. That the god, say the god of the sea, he may be god out there on the ocean, but he don't have anything to do with whether or not it rains on my crops. Somebody else's department, right? And the God who decides whether it rains or not on my crops is not the God who can help me fall in love with that gal I got that my eye on. That's somebody totally different you've got to pray to. And most of the ancient world would have believed that while we have our gods over here in Persia or Babylon, they've got a different set of gods down in Egypt, and their gods are probably just as real as our gods. And you can tell how powerful their gods are by how well they're doing. It's like this. Here in Alabama, we might have five or six gods. Over in Georgia, they've got six or seven other gods. We would take it for granted that their gods were probably real. And every year at the SEC championship game, we're going to find out whose gods really are the most powerful. <laughs> That's basically how it worked in the ancient world. But cutting against that grain, from the very first verse of Scripture, the Word of God says... That there is one God who created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not a bunch of gods created. Not everything just came into being by some kind of spontaneous mass divine chaos. But everything that is, is because the one God made it. And so the one God creates everything. He rules what he creates. One God created the ocean and the land and the heavens and the stars and the man and all the people in it and all the animals in it. There's one God for all of that. And that God begins to speak to people right at the very beginning. And he speaks to one people group in particular, the Hebrews. And he makes promises to them and says, You'll be my people and I will be your God. But it doesn't take long for those people to find themselves in trouble, right? in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And so the ancient world would have looked at that and said, what kind of God lets his people end up in slavery? It's not much of a God they've got, is it? Look at all the mighty gods of the Egypt. Our gods blessed us with the Sphinx. Our gods have given us the Pharaohs and the pyramids and the Nile that floods every year. Look at how great we're doing. But what you see in the Exodus is that God delivering his people from Egypt was nothing less than a demonstration of his power over the false gods of Egypt. The Lord says that in Exodus chapter number 12. and verse number 12, he says, I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So in other words, God says, it's not just that I'm God in Israel, but the God of Israel is also God in Egypt. And the God of Israel and Egypt is the God of Babylon. He's the God of Persia. He's the God of all of it. And the Word of God continues to show us that this one God is a God who will accept no rival because He has no equal. That this is a God who can say, there is none beside me and there is none like me. God says, there is none like me who declares the end from the beginning, who holds the oceans and the land in the palm of His hand, who stretches out His hands and meets out the heavens. I am God. 
And if there is one God, then this God is able to give us the one command you see in this passage of Scripture. You should love me with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, and your mind. If there are a bunch of gods, if you've got gods of weather and, and football and war and love and romance, if you've got all these different gods, then all of those gods are going to be limited in their location, in their sphere of influence, and they're going to be limited in what they can rightfully expect of you. A god of war can expect me to satisfy him if I'm going to battle. But if I'm going to see, then he has to be hands-off, right? But if there's one God over all of it, then that one God can be comprehensive in his claims. And he can say, you love me with everything that you are. And here, the words that he uses, the words heart, the words soul, the words might, those aren't necessarily talking about like different parts of our internal anatomy. It's just a way of saying that you love God with everything that you are, inside and outside, upside and down. I think it might be helpful here to think about what the Hebrew word love means. The Hebrew word for love here is the Hebrew word ahav. And it's not really a spectacular you know, word. It just means love. It's like the English word for love. We could use the English word, English word for love in a lot of different ways. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love bluebell ice cream. Somebody help me now. But I'm not saying the same thing. I'm just talking about love, right? Well, that's the idea of the Hebrew word ahav. It's just love. But linguists also say that the word ahav could also mean to pursue. You pursue what you love, don't you? I will pursue bluebell cookies and cream ice cream. Now, that's not really that hard of a pursuit. But I will go after it. In fact, I'm going to do that before bed tonight. I will go after it. Some of you can remember pursuing the person that you love that you're sitting beside right now, right? I had a buddy of mine that I used to work with, and I delivered pizzas. And just to let you know the kind of guy he was, the first date he had with his wife, he took her to the dump for a rat killing. I mean, if they got married, you can laugh, but it worked on her. I don't, I don't know if that tells you more about him or tells you more about her. Anyway. But he told me that before he started dating her, he, he was driving down the road one day, and he just happened to, to pass by a young lady in a vehicle, and he happened to look over, and he thought to himself, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. And he thought to himself, that's the kind of girl I'd like to take to a rat killing, I guess. And so he, he flies by her, and he has this thought in his mind, I need to get her number. And his thought was, he pulls over in front of her, into her lane, slams on his brakes, and... He got her number. Now, that relationship did not work out, as you could probably imagine. But what was he doing? He was pursuing that which he you know, thought he loved. And we pursue what we love. And what God is saying here in this passage is, you are to pursue me with your life. In fact, the Hebrew word ahav, linguists even say that it's kind of patterned on the sound of breathing. <gasps> right? That you breathe after that which you love. God says, I am to be that which drives you, that which animates you. You are to pursue me. And the Lord would say, you are to obey me. The book of Deuteronomy is a book that is presented 
in the language of ancient covenants where a god or a king comes to his people and says, here's what I have done for you and here's what you are to do for me as my people. And he tells them all throughout Deuteronomy, you are to love me and you are to obey me by loving you. We don't always put it together in our minds that love and obedience go hand in hand, but they do. Even Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Hear that verse. Jesus did not say, if you love me, you will kind of have some warm, fuzzy feelings when you think about me carrying you with one set of footprints in the sand. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's right. If you love somebody, you expect them to obey you. Now, I'm not saying that if you love somebody, you're going to treat them like a tyrant who rules over them. But you expect them to listen to you. You expect them to to value your input, to consider your ideas and your thoughts, right? Like, listen, y'all ain't tracking with me. Let me me help y'all. These kids I've been raising. They were, a week, they were a week old. Wake me up midnight. Wake me up at 2 in the morning. Wake me up at 4 in the morning. And because I love them, what did I do? I got up and I fed them. And I took care of them. Changed their diaper and they pee all over you and all over half the house. And what do you do? You clean it up because you love them. You work to provide for them. You make sure, I sound like my dad, put a roof over your head. <laughs> put food on your table. Man, it's terrible how that happens, isn't it? Gosh, you turn into them, don't you? But... You do. You put a roof over their head and you put food on their table. And so when I say, y'all go brush your teeth, I don't expect you to come back 12 seconds later saying, Daddy, I brushed my teeth. No, I expect you to obey. And what God is saying to the people of Israel is, I have loved you. And he says to you today, I love you. And I expect you to love and obey me. But this is the one problem we all have, isn't it? There's one God who gives one command, and this one command is our one problem. That God says to all of us, you should love me with all your heart, your strength, and with all of your might. And none of us have done that for five good minutes of our lives, have we? None of us have loved him the way he demands or the way that he deserves. We have a broken relationship with God. The Bible calls that broken relationship sin. It's not as if sin is just, you know, we really do love God and then these things just kind of happen and, you know, oops. No, but what the Bible would say is that sin is the result and the consequence of our not loving God. It is the brokenness that comes from this broken relationship. And sometimes that looks like, well, it looks like worshiping other gods instead of God. Now, I know you think, well, I I really do believe in one God. I don't worship any other God but God. But hear me out. Hear me out on this. In the ancient world, they worshiped gods of power, gods of love, gods really of financial success. We do the same thing. They just don't have statues. They don't live in temples. They live on Wall Street. They don't have holy places. They live inside of our cell phones. We worship and we give our hearts to pursuing, breathing after those false gods. Or often, we treat the one true God as if he was just another pagan god. The worship with the pagan gods was always transactional. I go to your temple, I make a sacrifice, and you take care of me because I did my part. And so God, I come to church on Sunday morning, and so God, you've got to answer my prayer because I've done my part. And so... We don't really love him as he commands. We use him. 
Or, probably even more likely, is this. And it's almost impossible to believe. This is the concern that God has in Deuteronomy 6. We forget God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 12. The Lord says that He's warning the people of Israel here. Lest when they get into the land and they get settled and they get comfortable, they forget God. It ought to terrify us how easy it is for us to forget God. Because frankly, a lot of us haven't given Him much thought, have we? It's not that we hate Him. It's not that we're angry with Him. It's not that we are burning incense to some other false god. It's just that we don't think He's important enough to care about. Here you are, having lived in His world and breathed His air all week. Walked around in His world this whole week. Used the strength He's given you to work or to do whatever it is you've done. Have you stopped to praise Him this week? Have you stopped to thank Him? Has He been in your thoughts? Has He been in your minds? You know today that the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference. Just simply don't care. Forgetting Him. But you know that if you are negligent in those most important relationships in your life, you know that's a problem. Just think. If I go home this afternoon and the kids are acting crazy, very strong possibility. And everybody's just getting on my nerves. And I just say to Amy, Amy, I'm going to run the store real quick and get my Bluebell ice cream. And let's just say that I was a loser and a creep and I never came back. You know, some guys do that, right? Abandon their families, abandon their wives, abandon their children. And I never called them on their birthday. I never celebrated Christmas with them. I never sent any kind of child support. I just totally disappeared from their lives forever. You know what you'd call me? Rightfully, you'd call me a deadbeat dad. And I can remember a time, even as young as I am, I can remember a time when we used to publicly shame guys like that. I can remember going to the grocery store and they'd have their names and faces up on a picture. Y'all remember? We need to bring that back. Instead of paid advertisements on Facebook, they need to have that guy. So, oh, this guy's not taking care of his kids, and if you see him, hit him in the leg with a tire. Anyway, that's, that's not part of the sermon today. Why? Because we know that a man ought to love and take care of his children. Amen? We know that a man ought to take care of his wife. A wife ought to love her family. A wife ought to love her children. A mom ought to be there for her kids. All of those kind of things. Well, how much more important is my relationship to God? How much more important is your relationship to the God who made you and who made you for himself? But have you walked out on that relationship? One problem. But it also points us to one solution. The problem is there's one God who commands us to love Him and we haven't done it. What's the solution? How can this break in our relationship with God be fixed? This is the riddle of the book of Deuteronomy, y'all. That's why I love the book of Deuteronomy. Because it is God saying to people, If you will obey me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. But I know you won't obey me. And so here's the punishment you're going to experience because you won't obey. But, he says, if you will repent, Deuteronomy 30, and if you will come back to me, then I will pursue you, I will love you, I will welcome you. If you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you, the Lord says. That's the riddle of Deuteronomy. How can a God who is holy and righteous look over 
my sin if he is also loving and wants to look over my sin? How can a God who demands that I love him deal with me knowing that I have not loved him when he also loves me? And y'all, the only answer to the riddle of the book of Deuteronomy is Jesus. That Jesus is the one man who heard what God commanded here in Deuteronomy 6. And who always loved God with all of his heart and with all of his strength and with all of his might. Who always put God first. Who deserves the blessings that come from obedience. Who uniquely says, Father, I have kept your commandments. I have obeyed everything that you have for me. And yet, Jesus is also the one who while earning covenant blessings took upon himself covenant curses. So that even though he obeyed God perfectly, he allowed God to treat him as if he was a lawbreaker. The Apostle Paul explains this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy 21, 23. I told y'all, it's the whole Bible. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says a lot in those verses, but let me explain it to you in a way that maybe we can understand. What Paul says is that God chose the people of Israel to be his covenant partners. He welcomed them, as it were, into a dance. I know you are Baptists and you don't dance. Hear me out on this. He welcomed Israel in and said, live face to face with me. Enjoy intimacy with me. But the people of Israel, all throughout their history, you know what they did? They tried to lead instead of letting God lead. They tried to make Him conform to their will instead of conforming to His will. And finally, they found more attractive dance partners. And they abandoned Him. What the Bible says is that where Israel was not a faithful partner, Jesus was that faithful partner. And He steps in, Paul would say, and He does perfectly obey the Father. He does live in intimacy with the Father. And He did all of that so that the Father and the Son through the Spirit could grab your hand and the three of you could be together forever. That is what Jesus offers you. Jesus offers you a right relationship with the God who loves you and with the God who made you and commands you to love Him. So I'll say to you today, your problem is that you have a broken relationship with God. That's my problem. It's all of our problem. That we put ourselves first. We put God somewhere else or nowhere else. We put God below us and below other things. And the consequence of that can be any number of things. Chemical addiction. Sexual sin, relational brokenness, anger that you just can't control. But it's in all of us. Y'all, it's in all of us. It's in me. What I need, what I need is for my relationship with God to be fixed. Which means I need my heart to be fixed 
And I need my sin to be forgiven. And that's why Jesus came. That is God's solution. God's solution is that the God who gave the law would be the God who keeps the law. And says to lawbreakers, come and welcome to me. And what Jesus would say to you today is that if you would have him, he would have you. Man, I like that so much, I'm going to say it again. Jesus said, if you would have him, he would have you. The one who loves God, the one who walked with him, the one who cared for him, is the one who cares for you. And he says to you, come unto me, all you who labor. And there's some of you today that are worn out by your sin. He said, come to me, all you who labor. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. And some of you right now are worn out by your efforts to fix your life. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Come and learn of me. He says, lay your burden down and take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My Lord Jesus says to you today, lay the burden of your sin down. Lay the burden of your religion down. My yoke is easy. And I'm going to tell you today, his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. And he says, come to me, all of you. Not, he, did, he did not say, come to me, all of you who are perfect. He did not say, come to me, all of you buttoned up, dressed up, put together Baptists. He did not say, come to me after you get clean. He said, come to me, all of you who are broken. Come to me, all of you who are messy. Come to me, all of you who are hurt. Come to me, all of you who are scarred. Come to me, all of you who are wounded. Jesus said, I came for you. But that also means for those of us who have come, for those of us that know him, that that's the mission that we are now part of. This is the reason that we worship Him. It's not just about having religious entertainment. It's about worshiping the God who invites us to Himself through Christ. It's not just about God forbid. It's not just about having a social club. Thank you, sis. It's about a family of believers that have been brought together by Jesus. Who are on mission together with him because he's serious about bringing people into that dance. He's serious about grabbing them by the hand and saying, come with me. I know some of y'all have a hard time with that dancing thing. Let me put it to you like this. Every now and then at my house, me and Amy and the kids, well, I'll just tell you, we dance at our house. I don't know. We have fun at our house. I don't know what y'all are doing, but look. And so I'll say, hey, Alexa, play Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> See, that's gonna, that, that needs to be the music. That's the music of my people from the mountains, all right? And I need to make sure my kids are in touch with their Appalachian heritage, y'all right? <laughs> and those banjos get to rolling. I'll grab Amy by one hand. I'll grab Scylla by the other hand. Scylla will grab Asa, and Asa will grab Amy's other hand, and we'll dance around a big circle. Now, I know some of y'all love Jesus. But I'm having fun with my kids. And what God says to you today in Jesus is take my hand. Take my hand. Take his hand today. And if you have taken his hand, reach out a hand to somebody. And say, come join us. Let's stand together today. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. I wish we had a banjo picker here. We'd really have an invitation. Let me pray for us now. Our Heavenly Father, oh God, Lord, you've spoken to hearts today. 
not through my words, but through the words of Scripture and the truth of the gospel. God, I pray people would respond and however they need to. God, that's your work. It's your work to work in people's hearts. God, all I know is what you did in my heart when I was 17 years old. Sitting in the back of a Baptist church in Nebo, North Carolina. God, do that in somebody today. For somebody here that is a believer, that is tired of their sin, tired of being held down by their past, God, bring them back home. For others, Lord, that really want to be useful, but they don't know what it looks like or what it means, God, work in them, I pray. Just, just move, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.